Welcome to Going Online with Oregon State University eCampus, a podcast series highlighting resources and tools for online learners across the globe. I'm Eddie Rodriguez, the Student Engagement Program Manager at Oregon State University eCampus, which serves more than 13,000 online learners annually through the delivery of 100 plus online degrees and programs. In this series, I'm joined by my colleague, Rachel Gintner, Entry and Transition Advisor at South Seattle College and former OSU eCampus Student Success Coach. We're glad you're here. Trigger warning. This episode contains content that may be challenging to experience, especially for survivors, victims, and community members who are impacted by gender-based violence. In this episode, we'll meet Jocelyn Kerr, a confidential survivor advocate for the Center for Advocacy, Prevention, and Education, also known as CAPE, at Oregon State University. We'll discuss the role of a confidential survivor advocate, support resources offered by CAPE, and additional support for online students. Let's get into it. Welcome, Jocelyn Kerr, who is here to talk to us today. Can you like, just begin by introducing yourself, where do you come from, and how long have you been with Oregon State University? Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Jocelyn Kerr. I am one of the confidential survivor advocates that works with CAPE, which is the Center for Advocacy, Prevention, and Education here at Oregon State. I originally am from Oregon. Yay. But then I spent like 15 years living out in the Midwest, in the East Coast, and then I came back. I have been with OSU in this role for just a little over a year, which was a fun little benchmark that I passed. But prior to that, I did my master's in the applied ethics program. And so I was a GTA. So like I was with OSU for the two years prior as well. So I kind of have been here three years and I've kind of been here one year. Gotcha. And I've kind of been here two years employed as the GTA first and then as the advocate position. But yeah. So you've worn many hats. I have worn many. I was also part of the faculty of the PAC, the physical activity department in their mind body unit with their yoga and yogic philosophy track. Did that for part time last year too. What else? I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. A quick follow up to that. What kind of keeps you sticking around? A little bit. Oh, to, Yeah, to Oregon State. You know, I think it, what's kind of interesting, my mom worked here for, I think, over 25 years. She was an wow. advisor for undergrads in College of Liberal Arts. Shout out to Kathy Fultz. So she retired in the latter half of 2016. And then I started working here. Well, I started my grad program in 2019. So in some ways, I kind of feel like I also, it's like very homey to me. I'm very yeah. used to being on this campus. Prior to that, she was at Western Oregon. And so I just kind of am used to being in an academic setting. Yeah. But in particular, I think one of the, my spouse and I, when we were, as I was wrapping up my master's program, trying to decide where, what do I want to do? Where do I want to work? And we kept just, okay, we really want to live in like a mid-size, maybe a college town. Maybe like we have some like good hiking nearby. Maybe like the traffic's not terrible, but it's also not super Spartan. You have some food, you have some stuff to do, places to go. You can get to a bigger airport if you want to. And we kept looking literally all across the U.S. And then we're like, oh yeah, we actually, we live there. We live, we live in that place. Absolutely. So then we bought a house and decided to stay. Wow. So for the eCampus listeners out there, since they do come from mm-hmm. all over the country, like as a local, a true blue local, I'll <laughs> say, like what would be like your three word pitch for folks to come visit Corvallis? That's hard. Rachel, 
I mean, I feel like that my three words are like going to be so, I don't know. I don't know that they're going to resonate with folks. Cause like, I'm such a big outdoor hiker person that I'm like hiking. Hiking is the, <laughs> it's the Pacific Northwest. That's yeah. what people want. Like it's a stereotype, but it's also very it's, true. It's, it's yeah. Like the magic of living here, like the, it takes us less than 10 minutes to get out on a trail, which is amazing. And I freaking love it. Um, so, okay. So hiking, I am, I always talk about population density. That's a good one. I love our population density in particular because there's enough people around. I don't feel like I'm just like out in the middle of nowhere. But also, I don't know, when people get up in arms about our traffic. Yeah. I mean. It's not traffic. It's cute. It's real cute. You can still breathe. Yeah. Like, it's not going to take you four hours to go two miles like Chicago or New York might, like, or Portland even. It's fine. We're fine. Everybody just take a deep breath. We're fine. So that's what, yeah, I don't know. Hiking, population density. What would be my third choice? Uh, I don't know. Because like, fully, I mean, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Monmouth for the folks at home, which is 25 miles north of Corvallis. So it is very silly to me that I did end up near my hometown. I used to pass through Corvallis as a child and go, yeah. So the fact that I live here now, but I will say like living in the Willamette Valley, I just, this is where I've compared every place that I've lived to. And I've lived in New York. I've lived in Chicago. I lived in Colorado. I lived in Washington. I always wanted to come back here. Yeah. No. Hi folks. This is Ed Rodriguez. I'm here as well. I've been listening. Now again, yeah. Pleasure to have you. It sounds like Obviously, Corvallis is, is a great place. It's near and dear to your heart for a lot of different reasons, as we just heard. But I'm curious to kind of go back at the beginning. You know, you're kind of introducing a little bit about what you do. So can you describe a little bit yeah, what CAPE is? And sorry if I missed it, but what does it stand for? And then, yeah, describe your current role. Absolutely. So my current role in CAPE. So here, let's situate it with CAPE, the Center for Advocacy, Prevention and Education. So that's survivors of interpersonal and gender-based violence. And we might even take that down a step to describe domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, bullying, harassment, rape, these types of traumatic events. So within that, though, provides advocacy for survivors. This includes student faculty and staff. And then the prevention side and the education side are the folks who are doing what's called primary prevention, which is really trying to educate the community, do awareness building with certain communities, especially here at OSU, we do kind of mandated, which always feels like such a heavy word, but they go every year to the athletics and the CFSL, the sorority and fraternity life and do trainings with those groups in particular, and then by request with other colleges, departments, offices on campus. So that prevention effort looks many different ways. And then we also have sexual health education embedded in our prevention, which is really cool. And it's kind of rare. Not a lot of prevention offices do that in college campuses. So th- that I think is it's just such a rich and, and it helps center positives of sexuality and human sexuality and interpersonal relationships that it's not always focused solely in on harm, that there is a goal towards healthy relationships that are fulfilling for people that we can prevent violence and that those who are dealing with and healing from violence do have a person to turn to. So within that, my role as one of the advocates is a confidential, free, and legally privileged person who a survivor could go to who is not a responsible employee, which we would use a blanket term and say mandatory reporter, but I can get into the differences there. But essentially, 
I'm what we would say. I'm an irresponsible employee. (laughs) I don't have to tell anybody if somebody comes to me and says that they have been assaulted, that they've been impacted by violence. If a person has a friend, a family member, somebody they know who's been impacted and they need to talk to somebody about what to do, I'm somebody you can come to and I'm not mandated to report. There are a few other offices on campus like that too, but... And, And why is that? Well... Currently, legislation in the state and across the nation, most government employees are designated as what's called responsible employee, which is, and this kind of has some quite a bit to do with our Title IX office, equal office, office of equal access and opportunity, mouthful. But any allegation of sexual misconduct or the other statutes that designate a Title IX violation must be reported to the university by a responsible employee. So like any, either of you are responsible employees. So if you're, you know, on the job, hanging out on, you know, at a conference, for example, if something happens, you hear about it, it is a mandate to report it. I'm not one of those folks. The other folks who are exempt from that are the counselors for CAPS, which I know our eCampus students have to pay an extra fee to get access to. And then let's see, our ombuds office has some stipulations that are different. And then our nurses that are here on campus or the telehealth line that you can call. Again, these are student fee funded offices, some of them. So a little different for our eCampus folks, but. Absolutely. And I think with being legally privileged, like, why is it so important for folks to know that about accessing your services and you as an advocate? Yeah, the legal privilege part is kind of unique and special to folks like me. It's really hard to get our records. We get to push back on court subpoenas. You know, judge a judge might request a records, and there's a lot more that that judge has to do to subpoena those records. Kind of operate. Lawyers have a operation operating category similar to this. So, yeah. Within that, though, again, the confidentiality aspect of it and the free aspect means that we're all, we're our advocacy side of Kate, the Cape House is not student fee funded, so we're not beholden mm-hmm. to some of those. Smaller things. That's what makes CAPS and student health a little bit more inaccessible to our eCampus folks because of the way student fees work. Yeah. So with this like confidentiality, this legal privilege that y'all have, what does this mean? Yeah. For our survivors and victims who are maybe thinking about, uh, you know, reaching out and maybe having a conversation with you. I mean, it means you literally can say as much or as little as you want. We always operate under uh, extreme need to know (laughs) and extreme consent, meaning that if somebody were to like, let's say I get an email and the email says, hey, my friend was impacted by something that happened over the weekend. I really want you to reach out to them. On the surface, that looks great. Oh, this person cares about their friend. They want them to have help. But it wasn't the survivor that reached out. And therein is this hard thing that sometimes we we do as humans. We care. We want to support people. And at the same time, what we need to do instead is if we know that person is impacted in some way, say, hey, I know about a service here that's confidential, meaning they're not going to tell anybody anything at all about you. They're going to even deny the fact that you talked to them if somebody were to ask. I know about this service. Do you want me to either give you their info or help you reach out to them? That's consent. That's trauma-informed behavior. Putting the 
power, putting the story, putting the information back in the hands of the survivor so that they have sole control of where that information goes. I totally, I just, I get that in instinct so much. We want to help people. We want to, hey, can you do this thing for them? It feels like a, the, the less heavy lift, right? To say they're going to do the work for you. But that's where confidentiality comes in and helps provide a framework, a bubble around the survivor that says, no, we want you to control what you put out in the world. You get to choose who talks to you. You get to choose who you give your info to. So within that confidentiality, if a student or staff or faculty comes to us for services, one of the first things we do is sign a little agreement that just says, hey, I'm not going to tell anybody anything about you unless you give me express written or verbal, in some cases, <laughs> permission to do so. And then we sign little tiny, we sign what's called a release of information. It sounds more scarier than it is. It's essentially a form that we use with a survivor to say they give us consent to speak to a very specific person or a very specific office, and it would be about their academics, or it would be about their mental health, or it would be about their housing or finances. And so we would only speak to that office and that personnel about those specific things, not about this, the violence that's happened unless they needed us to, not about mental health stuff. It was housing related. So we try and get very specific so that the survivor can trust and know that the information that they want out to a specific office is protected and only in that case and that nothing else is. Yeah. And so just to get into mm -hmm. kind of the finer details a little mm -hmm. bit more with the legal privilege, the real kind of emphasis about agency and engagement and consent are students and members able to be 100% anonymous and use your services? Absolutely. I think the anonymity in some cases, unfortunately, like for us, we'd need to know who they are at some point. But we get calls a lot that are, it, we don't find the name out, but people are saying, hey, I want to know if I go do a safe kit, which it would be with a sexual assault nurse practitioner to if somebody were assaulted. If I go and I want to go do that safe kit, do I have to submit to the entire exam to receive the emergency contraception? So we get questions like that sometimes. We get questions like, hey, what offices, what office would it be that if I needed to submit an ARC petition? And we just give that information out, which FYI, you could totally go do go to a sane nurse and not do the safe kit and just get the emergency contraception. And also the, you know, ARC petitions online, you know, but so we would tell, but we don't need to know their name unless they want to give it. If it were something more, hey, I have a professor who I'm trying to reach out to about an extension and they're really not hearing me or they're not responding. Can you help me? Of course, at that point, we do need to kind of know their name so we can say like, hey, this student in your class is a client of mine. They need an extension. How can we help? So the anonymity can absolutely exist to some extent, but when it gets more specific, we do need to, at least with them, know their name. Absolutely, depending on what yeah. their needs are or what information they might give. Like As we know, existing within the institutional systems, like so much is attached to identifying fact, student ID and like their class load and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, and as you kind of, you know, Jocelyn began to talk a little bit about you know, some examples of how you're supporting, you know, our students, you know, you, you know, we've already talked about that certain things aren't accessible, for example, for eCampus students, given the student fee, but you know, your office is one of those places where that's not impacted, but obviously eCampus students are all over the world and, you know, they might not be able to access in-house stuff that like, you know, come in person to any 
of these offices and stuff like that. So two questions here. One, how do, you know, eCampus students find you or connect with you? How's that, that, that information getting to them? And then what sort of things can they expect in terms of like resources? Yeah. I mean, one of the, I think one of the beautiful things that came out of our lockdown pandemic times and, you know, know that a pandemic is not over. I want to make that clear, but we are at least like we're three sitting in the same room together. And this is a real great opportunity to be back in person. But one of the great things that came out of all of that was better access via different technological means. So when we do advocacy and and I didn't really say this in the beginning because I don't tend to lean on it a lot of the times, but I'm I'm the person that an eCampus student can come to specifically. I'm the eCampus confidential survivor advocate. <laughs> My title is like super long, so I tried to n- nail it down. Four words, email, phone, any of that. So people can email us directly a couple of different ways. There's survivor advocacy, all one word, all lowercase Survivor Advocacy at OregonState.edu. They can also email me directly. It's jocelyn.kerr at OregonState.edu. And then you can call our office. It's 541-737-2030. We are in office 8 to 5 Pacific. And so after hours, a couple of things are options on our voicemail. You can leave a confidential voicemail. The only people who have access to it are the advocates. So we check that first thing in the morning, anytime we might be out. And then there's also an option to be directed over to a confidential advocate at a 24-7 hotline. And so you can talk with that advocate and at least get some guidance, especially if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, you need somebody to talk to. You can call our line. I think it's press 1 to be directed over to the confidential advocate that's in the 24-7 hotline. They will at the very least be able to help troubleshoot and help potentially find locations in your area that might support or give you ideas about, oh, okay, awesome. Okay. I need to look for this in my neighborhood. But that's something like when a student reaches out to me or a staff or faculty, if they're offsite, if they're in another state, another country, it looks a few different ways. Sometimes we just converse over email back and forth, especially if that's easier. If like time zone is just completely, we'll schedule Zoom meetings and set it up. I try to accommodate folks, especially if you know, let's say like my 7 a.m. is the best time for them in their time zone. That's okay. It's not so far off of the hours that I would normally work. I might not schedule something at 1 a.m. Well, I will go. I will say this. I do have my boundaries, which is healthy. You know, we try to accommodate as much as possible. And those Zoom that can be Zoom, that can be phone with Zoom. I never make it a mandate that somebody has to show their face on camera. And luckily, all that Zoom stuff that we use is encrypted and protected. So the it's a very low risk of hack hacking or somebody Zoom bombing us. But a lot of times what I'll find out is just, you know, what kind of resources they might be needing. If it's stuff that I can support academically from where I'm at and where they are, easy peasy, especially just anything university related. And then from there, if it's resources that they might be needing, like emergency housing, emergency financial support, I do the digging and I look into what is in their area in terms of if there's shelters, if there's crime victims compensation that they can apply for in their county. It depends, of course, once we start to get international. But if I'm if I'm helping a student living in London, I'll be looking at what kind of shelter systems they have there. And I'll be looking at other services that might be government support that they can also apply to. And one of the first things I would always say is those shelters and community centers are always going to have that information as well. And so funneling through those locations is going to be one of the fastest ways to seek more of those basic needs 
support services. Those centers are going to be exactly like me. They're going to know. But I also have links to a lot of them. So I share those as quickly as I can. Yeah, there's a lot we dig into with this, but. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even know a lot of this stuff. So I appreciate you sharing this, Jocelyn. Like the fact that, you know, y'all are making yourself that accessible and kind of above and beyond, I think is great. Because I, I know just anecdotally from some of the students I've had the opportunity to speak with sometimes, yeah, they're, yeah, they don't know that they can access you at different hours or, you know, leave messages and stuff like that. Cause that's always the tricky part for them is if they're in a different time zone, like how can we even reach you? So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I think especially when talking about accessibility, just for clarification for listeners, like the health student health fee is not included in eCampus tuition. Like you're exempted from that due to the fact that a lot of those services are extremely local to Corvallis, but that health fee is something that you're able to opt into if yes. you're local due to the fact that there's a lot of licensing involved with, you know, having those services available. Per term, it is $217.77 this year, this academic year. As of the recording of this podcast. That's true. They just updated the website, though, so... That's the, I've had to recently write it. <laughs> I was to get those updates. In the future, though, double check. <laughs> yeah, and we'll have that linked in the uh, information related to this episode. I think, though, one of the big questions for eCampus students, especially since they're just all over the place, is, you know, really, like, a lot of them may look at resources at Oregon State and think those aren't for me. And I think you've made really clear, and I'll also just reiterate that, like, advocacy and support for victims and survivors and folks affected by violence is can be very and is very hyper-specific to their area, to their needs, and that I think it's really encouraging and I hope that it provides a lot more context for what that process may look like, but that, you know, you're doing kind of the detective work to ensure yeah. that they're that you're able to identify what resources folks are would be able to use within their local area should they choose to. Obviously, everything is by choice with agency and, you know, they can engage with those things should they choose to. But I think that's really helpful in just providing more avenues to access in the area. But I think it's really important for them to know that, like, that they've got you in their corner yeah. doing that legwork. And so I really appreciate that level of detail and that it can be very specific to their area. Sometimes it's overwhelming to Absolutely. identify those resources yourself. And so well, and a lot of sometimes survivors too, like they might know the resources there, but they don't really at that moment, if they're dealing with some complex trauma, it can, the reach out can be so difficult. And that's where an advocate can also help. An advocate can make what's called, we would call a warm handoff where I would with the consent of the survivor, if they expressly ask me, Hey, can you reach out to those people? I just I'm having a lot of hard time. I'm having a hard time doing that. You know, I'll make that phone call. I'll make that email happen to get them connected after we've had the conversation. Do you want me to do this for you? That's the, and that's that back to like when the friend refers the friend, right? It's, do you want me to do this for you right now? That's always trauma-informed consent approach. Yeah. And one question I have, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you know, there are instances where someone, a friend will do kind of the referral or if the survivor is ready to kind of make that kind of step forward to reach out. But I guess kind of backtracking a little bit on that, what would you say are the signs that come up when recognizing 
witnessing or experiencing abuse? Yeah. You know, I think that's really varied. You know, if we're talking with somebody or, or, you know, let's say I'm a faculty member, I think one of the biggest signs that something has happened and that is a huge scope. Something has happened that's impacted a person in a certain way is the behavior change. When I was a faculty as staff, well, I was, yeah, when I was faculty, one of the big things I would notice is just a drop off in attendance and a drop off in communication. And, you know, I personally took the approach of kind of three reach outs via email or student, you know, whatever messaging service they're using, put it in there. Hey, I'm here if you need me. Beyond that, some of the signs might be also to like within that behavior change, just a reactionary style of change. If you're used to talking to somebody and hey, buddy, you know, laughter or whatever, and now it's that they barely make eye contact, it might be something happened. Is it a death in the family? Is it, you know, if that person utilizes medication to help with that mood stabilization, it might be a change in med. You don't, we don't know. And in in that moment, like, like asking is like the last thing you want to do. I wouldn't be like, hey, what's going on? That's no, (laughs) but it might be more like, hey, I'm here if you ever need to talk to somebody or I know people you could talk to who are confidential and free, but when it's a friend, if we know that person, if, or if we're a little bit more deeply engaged There might also be things like I'm thinking of scenarios. If you have a friend who has a a partner and you see the interchange between the partner and the friend behaviors that would fall under sort of power and control, because at the end of the day, violence comes from oppression. And of course, there's different ideas about what begets what oppression tends to be a tool that is utilized through violence, but also violence becomes this like oppressive tool. And so they kind of go hand in hand. They play off of each other. But certain things come to mind within that. Always asking to look at your phone, always asking to look at your messages. Oh, who's texting you? If that starts to become an ongoing cycle where you're being worn down to the point where you're like, yeah, sure, fine, look, you can look at it. You know, nobody's texting me. That would absolutely be a sign or just a red flag. Uh, another one would be like financial control. Somebody's holding finances over your head or, you know, giving a, a like a like monetary, like what's the word I'm looking for? A stipend or something. Yeah. Uh, allowance. Other forms of oppression obviously come into like physical and emotional abuse, controlling somebody's behavior or through just little even things like continuously shushing your partner or being shushed a lot if they're just talking and speaking their mind. Now, of course, we have to always kind of think about this in a framework. If a person is like yelling all the time um, and like very obviously being disruptive and we need to tell them to be quiet, there are probably better ways than shushing them. But so, of course, we can't make any hard and fast rules. But I would say that for the survivors out there, too, it's to start noticing how you feel after every interaction with your partner, with this person you're dating or somebody you're intimate with, not necessarily sexually, it could be familial, it could be friends, coworkers. If those interactions start to leave you feeling like you're always in the wrong if it starts to leave you feeling like you've always stepped in it, you've done something bad, you're being told, reprimanded, chastised, corrected all of the time, there starts to become a pattern. We start to notice that there's a power imbalance. I mean, I think that's where, and just a thinking in a hierarchy of a workplace, right? Those with the most power don't always notice how they're impacting the people that they are overseeing. 
You may think that you're very open, honest, available, caring, here to be here, here to listen to everybody who works beneath you in that power structure. But if nobody's coming to you to tell you what they think, what they honestly feel, you know, in the end, in the, at that moment, that there might be a power imbalance happening that needs to be addressed from another party. And I would just say that wouldn't necessarily be a red flag or abusive, but using that as an example to then put it into a relationship where those things are used against somebody to control them. Yes, that is a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for kind of providing those scenarios and those examples. I think a theme that I think you touched on, especially with things like, you know, phone use, finances, platonic interactions, or possibly isolation from support network. I think, you know, I, it sounds like an encouragement, like not an encouragement, but just like, um, how folks are engaging in defining the boundaries of their privacy. Does that feel kind of, I know those big words, but I think for a lot of these things that end up kind of building or compounding with signs and different aspects of folks' lives that, you know, thinking about, you know, the boundaries that are surrounding your own privacy as personhood are things to be thinking about. If you're sort of turning your agency over to somebody else, you know, we think of terms like codependency might be not necessarily the red flag, but it might be the orange or yellow flag that we're starting to just examine how much are we reliant on somebody else for all aspects of our basic needs, for aspects of like our financial success. Do we want that? That's the question. If you want that, I mean, sugar baby it up. Please do. Please live your best life. And at the same time, exactly. If you don't want that, if that's being used against you or I mean, you know, very quite literally blackmail or even, you know, image sexy images you might have shared with somebody at some point. And then they start to say, I'm going to show these to other people if you don't do X, Y, Z. Yeah, that's a red flag. Cyber abuse tech abuse happens regularly. So I think those privacy, the privacy concerns and boundaries that you're mentioning to extend to all circles, all facets of life, that the control is in your hands to give if you want to. But if that's not your intent, that's not your aim, then we need to start discussing, start talking, start finding strategies, safety planning, which is something that we do. Absolutely. I think in this conversation, like, there's a real kind of pull and push versus, you know, victims and survivors being able to identify themselves with these signs and kind of have those reality checks. And then there's like the folks in their spheres, their support groups, their workplaces at times can recognize that behavior because they're not existing in those relationships. And I think I encourage everyone to kind of give themselves patience and grace when they're thinking about the context of these signs and how they're impacting you, because it is incredibly challenging, I think, to really stay present with these things and, you know, notice these things if they're like the day-to-day regularity of someone's life. And so I think especially with thinking about those friends that are making those recommendations, those warm handoffs that are seeing their boundaries, you know, being infringed, there's a real urgency to like correct that. But I think something that's really important that you're touching on, Jocelyn, is like, how those realities might be at complete odds with each other, depending on folks, like how they are present in their relationships. And I think that's really important too. That really brings to mind the, there's a, I think a common phrase we hear, not just in survivor and, you know, quote unquote victim behavior, but also like 
I, I think immigration comes to mind in this too. Why don't you just do the get out of it? Why don't you just leave? Or, you know, the why don't you go to your home country or whatever it is? Why don't you just X, Y, Z? And to understand this super, super duper difficult position a person is in when they are underneath a sense of control or somebody else controlling them, they don't have access to that agency sometimes. And that's, I think, a really big difficult challenge to understand. It seems very easy to leave a situation if it's not serving you. And if you're under your most like supported, like most like you're feeling your best, you're feeling your strength. Yeah. In those moments where, hell yeah, I'm going to leave. I'm going to do the thing that I know I need to do. And that feels so good in those moments. But I'll be upfront with you. I can share part of my story. I was in a, in a I wouldn't, I was in kind of an abusive, coercive relationship for a very long time. And it is still to this day, many years later, still something that I talk about in therapy, recognizing the signs of control that were, that I was under down to the things that I wore down to comments about my body down to, you know, very real instances of control that were physical. You know, that's another sign I would say is if somebody's wearing you down constantly every day to have sex and you say, no, I don't want to. I don't feel like it right now. Oh, come on, please. And wearing you down, wearing you down until you do quote unquote consent. That is still not consent. That is coercive control. Coercion, such a big, I love, that's one of my favorite words right now is coercion. But yeah, I mean, it is not cut and dry to leave. You might be financially dependent on somebody. Maybe you cannot work at that moment. You might not be able to get yourself transportation. So you might be having to share a car. Others who have children with their abuser. Very difficult situation. It is not easy and sometimes not safe to leave. Safety might be staying with the known as opposed to the unknown. And it always brings up so many feelings to talk about things like this. And so I know that for me, sometimes it's also good to remember like deep breath. I'm um, what we would call a like a, a mirror emotional person. So whenever I'm like with other people in the room, a survivor in the room, if they start crying, I immediately start crying, even though I might be over in my desk. Like it happens all the time. But one of the other things that I also try and remind myself when I'm talking about these things, when I'm helping survivors is there's still space for hope. There is still space for laughter and joy, even in the, like the deepest moments. I might be with somebody at Sarah's place, which is our local sane nurse location in Albany. There might I'm still going to crack jokes. I'm still going to try and have fun to remember that there is more to survivorship than survivorship. There is more to your humanness than that that thing that happened to you. Your story is so much bigger. It makes me cry to talk about that. But the other thing that I also try and just remember is when I walk out on the street every day, there are so many people out there. <laughs> Not all of them are bad. It is a smaller percentage than the whole population of this town, of this campus, of this world. That by and large, most of the people we interact with every day are good. They're doing their best. We've all got our, our stuff that we carry with us. We've all got our trauma that we carry with us. It looks like so many different things. And so in those moments where like we might ourselves feel triggered, we might feel like we're in an, a situation that feels unsafe. 
one of the things that like as a survivor myself, I tend to go like, okay, what am I actually doing right now? Well, at the moment, what I would say is I'm sitting in a recording booth (laughs) with two people that I trust. And even though I have emotions that are coming up, my safety is not at risk right now. So then, of course, you can do that in other situations. You're walking down the street. You know, is somebody staring at you nefariously? If they are, then please seek safety. But if what you're doing is walking down the street, you have your friend, you got your soda or whatever, and you're just like laughing and then the feeling comes up. It's that moment you can assess with your friend and be like, hey, I I just got kind of triggered right now. But I think I'm safe. So those that's a little like technique that I tend to use, too, in those moments where I'm starting to get deep in the weeds of feeling like, oh, my God, all of the horror, all of the violence. There's there is so much more than those instances, than those moments So we need to remember. We, I think we can I think at least for me, it works to remind myself. Yeah, I think I thank you for sharing your story and also that helpful tip and strategy and just remembering the hope and the kindness in others while it's incredibly dark right now (laughs) that there's still and i think this is important for victims and survivors but also bystanders that are affected by that violence is really thinking about how are you showing you know those in your circle empathy and compassion grace and kindness and sometimes it's patience you know in relationship to whatever situation that they may be in, that you're able to still show up for them in those kind of core tenets of just, are you able to show them that you care, that you're kind of lending your empathy, possibly resources to support them in what they need in that moment. And I think, especially tapping into what we were talking about earlier about like, sometimes we just desperately want to see people get themselves out of a situation they might not be ready for or are able to do for whatever reason that what are the ways that you can show up for them presently, I think is very important in thinking about how we recommend folks to seek out advocates like yourself and resources locally in their area, but also, you know, ensuring that things are staying as as present as possible, because it can get very easy to hung up with like, after this, you know, you'll get through and, you know, things will change. And it's like, they probably will, but I hope so. But there's uh, oftentimes a lot of unforeseen barriers or circumstances that keep folks from unable to making those changes that they may want or may that they not recognize currently. I think think important thing to note about advocacy is not only helping a person out of a dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes advocacy looks like supporting a person while they're in it, while they can't leave, while they choose to stay with their abuser. I might internally be thinking the best thing would be is to leave. That might, but that's my personal opinion. I see it from the outside. I'm not in it. And so an advocate is not going to say like, well, you need to leave. An advocate is going to say, how can I help you find out what you need? Because sometimes the answer to what do you need is I don't know. So even in those moments, it's not that I'm going to be like, well, I'm going to tell you what to do then. (laughs) The answer is I'm going to sit and talk with you and we're going to talk about options. And if the answer is I'm going to stay in this abusive situation for now, then the answer is we talk about safety planning. Let's talk about how we can keep you a little safer while you're in it mm-hmm. until you're ready to leave, if you ever do. And that's okay. Yeah. It's okay. I think it's important to remember that it's okay to make that choice. As a supporter of somebody, I think one of the best things you can say is thank you for trusting me and telling me this. Absolutely. I think that there's, you know, again, in staying present yeah. with empathy, and I think that's really kind of the core tenet of advocacy work is just remaining present and really advocating for what the present needs of that survivor or that person coming to you might be. But also 
I think, especially for bystanders or folks affected by violence in people that they care about, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of vulnerability that takes place to disclose. And I think that really recognizing that even talking about it, verbalizing and externalizing it might be the biggest hurdle for them or maybe like the beginning of something or might not be anything at all. And I just want to share it. But I think really recognizing and being very aware of what it takes to be that vulnerable to disclose something to someone like no matter what the personal feelings are, let's get you out of there. Like I want to scoop you up and take you away from a situation. Like I think really seeing present with what that vulnerability may mean for that person, for that situation, I think is really critical to be thinking about as you may be thinking about the signs and things that we talked about today in a way that, you know, again, keeps things present for all parties involved. Well said, Rachel. (laughs) Yeah, I've been trying to hold back my own tears. But yeah, no, thank you, Jocelyn. Like you were just saying, thank you for trusting us and having this open conversation and sharing a lot of just very insightful things that I think are just important for everybody to know, whether you are a survivor or a victim or someone who's kind of in that network of support and kind of witnessing some of this stuff. But one of my final questions that I have for you, in some ways, kind of bringing this to a little bit of a close, but what would you want eCampus students to know about CAPE, about you and the support that you provide? I think one of the first things, one of the first things that comes to mind is that I want folks who seek our services to know that it doesn't look any one way. Healing doesn't look like anything one way. It's very specific to a person. There is no one correct process. Uh, Sometimes I say it takes the time that it takes. I mean, I can speak very much to that. I think one of the other things that's always important to remember about us is though we are irresponsible, (laughs) though we are confidential, we are still called a mandatory reporter. And so I mentioned kind of at the beginning that there's this difference between a mandatory reporter and a responsible employee. Both of you are both of these mandatory reporters and responsible employees. Where the responsible employee is the report made about sexual misconduct or Title IX violation. Mandatory reporters are responsible for reporting child abuse or elder abuse in some instances or abuse of those who are quote unquote, incapacitated. So those might be people who, my, my brain always goes to someone in a coma, but I think that that's a very broad statement. The, so I am a mandatory reporter. And so that's something that when I meet with a survivor for the first time, I usually kind of lead with that. I, I lead with, hey, I'm confidential. I'm, you're, you're safe here. You can say what you want. But if you also need to include anything about an unreported abuse of a minor. I actually do have to report. That's a 24-7 mandate of my role. It's a 24-7 mandate of a government employee role. Doesn't matter. You could be in your apartment complex. You you need to report. And under the auspices of consent, if a survivor has to disclose child abuse, I can actually send you elsewhere to a non-government employee who is not mandated to report child abuse. Because sometimes that's going to be a hindrance to talking, especially if you're in a family situation. That's, I think, a big thing to keep in mind, like that, that my confidentiality does have limitations. They're very few, but they do exist. Yeah. And I think maybe the last thing that I like to keep in mind and tell folks about our office in general is that, like I said, it feels very dark. This is a very, this is very impactful work, but it, 
the reason why we do it, the reason that I do it and I keep coming back is I actually get to see the change that happens for folks, which as a former yoga teacher, I didn't always see. Then I, I feel like a whole other podcast I can talk about at that about no one needs to hear that. But <laughs> I get to actually see it when folks turn that corner, when that healing starts to happen. I get to see the change that occurs for folks which is just, it's inspiring every day. We have a wall where we stick up like the good things that happened. We just remind ourselves because I mean, gosh, I even talking about traumatic events really brings up so much. So it's important to remind yourself of the good that is out there. Even if it feels like there is very little, there is still something out there that is good. Thank you so much for your time today, Jocelyn, and thank you for your information, your knowledge, as well as your empathy and care for others. I know that I'm grateful that you're here with us, and I know that students are grateful doing this work, so really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks again, Jocelyn. Yeah, happy to be here. 